Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the fourth and final Little Atom special from Future Everything, Alex Fleetwood on the demise of Hide and Seek and a possible national game space, and then Anab Jane on Superflux. Alex Fleetwood is the founder and director of Hide and Seek, a recently and sadly closed game design studio that was dedicated to inventing new kinds of play. Hide and Seek started life in 2007 as a festival of social games and playful experiences on London's South Bank and built into a studio occupying, I should say, it says occupied, a unique position in the UK, creating innovative games, installations and events with a host of world-famous brands. Alex, welcome to this uh, Hello. fireside chat, first of all. Um, before we get into talking about Hide and Seek and, and what happened with Hide and Seek, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got there, actually, how you ended up in, in games design. So my original background is music. I studied music at York University, which is a wonderful place to be. And I originally worked in the field of sort of opera and producing kind of artistic projects in mm-hmm. contemporary music. So I worked for some small-scale opera companies and uh, ran an opera competition and did sort of things like that. And uh, was increasingly kind of aware and uncomfortable of this disconnect between this um, funded, subsidised, amazing mm-hmm. art experience that I was contributing to that was for really not very many people. And everyone kind of being okay with that, you know, yeah. like it was this sort of thing that, every, you know, like uh, I remember the artistic director of a well-known North London opera festival saying, you know, we get our three broadsheet reviews and our audience comes from N5 and N1 and I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay, so if you're fine with that, I need to do something different because yeah. I'm really not. Um, and at that stage, Channel 4 was broadcasting the occasional film opera back when Channel 4 did adventurous arts programming. And Long time ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, cast your mind back. Um, <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, film opera is interesting. That's a sort of would be an exciting development. And I, I kind of got a job in TV, and I was sort of seeing how I could maybe put these things together. And uh, with the help of a brilliant producer called John Wyver, put together a proposal for Channel 4 for a film opera project called The Eternity Man. And uh, that was a kind of five-year fundraising epic as these things tend to be and during that time I actually worked for Channel 4 completely coincidentally um, in a kind of a commercial job ending up running their kind of DVD acquisitions team working with the likes of company pictures and those kinds of companies. So through that whole kind of process I was on one one side kind of in a big UK broadcaster which was experiencing this great kind of convulsing panic about the internet and mm. ah, user-generated content, which was what everyone used to say back then, as if that was some kind of universal panacea for ten of television. We'll just add this thing called yeah. UGC to television and then we'll be okay. But actually, 
the people who worked at Channel 4 who weren't in charge but who were in the canteen having lots of discussions about games and internet and culture and all of those things, that was super interesting and really, and really formative. At the same time as that, I'm taking this art form that I love and trying to kind of translate it into this much more distributable, accessible, populist mm-hmm. film format and going to lots of participatory, interactive, site-specific work, because those are all words that you know, we're yeah. still banding around, but they were kind of pretty, nice pretty, words, yeah. pretty hot at the time. Yeah. They, they, they kind of meant, I, yeah, they, well, they meant something to me at the time, and it was very exciting. And certainly, the, in particular, the first Punch Drunk show I, sh- mm-hmm. I saw in 2005, the Firebird Ball in, uh, at Oval, was one of those kind of exciting moments where this is one part warehouse party, yeah. one part yeah. video game, and one part theatre. Well, I really like all of those things. And it kind of then, it was a bizarre revelation, really. I'm like, hang on. I've been making culture for my whole life and doing all these sort of things, and that's my job and my mm-hmm. career. At the same time as that, I've been playing video games, and I love them, <laughs> and, they, and they're meaningful, and they're some of my most amazing experiences have been playing video games. Mm-hmm. But, like, video games culture, and this little bridge kind of built, and I kind of went, well, why have I never thought about that as a kind of territory to explore as a, as a producer and as a creative. Why have I always been kind of over here this stuff? And I guess it's because there is a kind of unconscious prejudice that you don't kind of associate what's going on in video games with stuff that happens mm-hmm. with that sort of cult. There's a terrible word, isn't it? Culture. Uh, but, you know. And so I thought, well, I, want, I need to investigate that. I need to check that out. So worked a little bit with Punch Drunk. We did a kind of crazy prototype and with uh, their help put on the first Hide and Seek Festival, which was a kind of in concrete, let's make some games, let's just do Mm -hmm. something, Um, let's put something on. And then the reaction and the kind of response to that real-world event, you know, Mm -hmm. just seeing... It was a couple of hundred people, but their kind of intensity of their reaction to it was so amazing that I'm like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the place to be. So. so we're talking very specifically about here, just in case anyone isn't clear on that, on yes. games that are, you know, participated in the world, in real life, rather that's than right. video games. Street galleries. Well, that's where we began. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sort of nucleus of hide-and-seek is this festival of games for public space, mm-hmm. which was collaborating with artists, theatre makers, interested people to create games that people could then play yeah, on the street, in a room, where, wherever the game was set. Where do you think the... I mean, your interest in games stayed there. I mean, how, how did you sort of you retain that right up to that time? I, you know, we all share. Like, I mean, I certainly like... Some of my most extraordinary experiences have come playing games, whether it be, you know, playing... RuneQuest or Warhammer with, with friends as a kid or playing the first Tomb Raider or, you know, like there's these kind of moments that I kind of remember really vividly and really clearly. So it wasn't that much of a... And I guess the kind of music that I'm interested in is also kind of at that edge between improvised... Like, you know, music, you, you play it, there's this sort of, you know, there are rules, um, you can master it, mm-hmm. um, there are qualities of improvisation and performance... There's a lot of stuff going on and, you know, there's a complicated relationship between storytelling and, and music mm-hmm. um, that people work out in different ways. So actually, so there were all sorts of things, I think, in my kind of makeup that found a really interesting place when I started to sort of apply them in the world of games. Mm-hmm. The first thing I did, and was is one of the reasons why it's possible for hide and seek to exist, is that there is a kind of secondary literature around game design now. It was this kind of slightly guarded... You know, the people who made games didn't really talk about the way they made games. They just sort of happened. Yeah. And uh, now, thanks to the likes of Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen with Rules of Play and the Rules of Play anthology and Raf Costa and his theory of fun for game design, there's a lot of books out there that 
uh, a kind of um, idiot like me can buy and read and start to kind of assemble some thinking about how games work and, and apply those to making things. Where does that, I guess, not secrecy, but, you know, that sort of unclearness about the games come from then? Are we talking, is that really because of, I mean, the corporate nature of design of, of big blockbuster games? And, and has that changed with the sort of the re-rise, you know, once upon a time, when we were first into computer <coughs> games, they were independently produced by people in their bedrooms. Right. That's starting to happen again. That's being able to sort of... I think it's just a gradual process as a kind of cultural, a new cultural form kind of takes shape. Film studies came a long time after film. Yeah. You know, the grammar gets worked out, all the sort of, you know, the kind of rules <coughs> and the tropes and the, the sort of things get worked out initially by artists and makers and, and then gradually kind of get codified and reflected on and they enter the academic kind of territory. And then you get, well, now, now what you've got, with the likes of sort of, you know, I mean, Jonathan Blow is a good example. You've got a very self-conscious game designer yeah. who's very, who's referencing styles of video game in a very nuanced way in his work mm-hmm. um, you know so then you're kind of coming sort of full circle now where we have these sort of second or third generation video game artists who are kind of reflecting back on historic practice in interesting ways so yeah you know, and that obviously works the game but then people who have that knowledge can sort of appreciate that you know looking back on the we kind of all have that knowledge, right? Like, yeah. We all have that knowledge as players. Like, like we have the, there's an enormous corpus of shared knowledge of types of play experience that we've had playing games, and that's not just video mm-hmm. games. You know, like we understand how you know we, we've all played board games, card games, parlor games. Both our learned understanding of different types of games and how they work, but also just our innate understanding of fun and fairness and. Mm-hmm. And all of those things. So there's a, there's a lot of material to work with that's shared. Yeah, sure. It's not it's, it's less niche than you, than one might think. Let's talk about some of the those earlier projects. Then, mm-hmm. Where, what did you start doing? What sort of things did Hide and Seek do? So that first festival happened, and then um, a kind of pre Hide and Seek project, but that was ne- nonetheless quite formative, was a thing called the Soho Project, mm-hmm. uh, where we uh, for the London Games Festival Fringe in 2007, we took over a, a base in Soho and. Uh, created a, an early uh, sort of Facebook, YouTube game where you had missions that you had to accomplish and you had to film yourself while accomplishing those missions and then up- upload the video to YouTube and tag it and then it would be reviewed and, and you would score points as a result. And they were sort of missions that were intended to kind of creatively engage you with the landscape and the history of, of Soho. So there was, uh, you know, I remember one which was in the manner of the street where you had to sort of you know, be kingly in kingly court or carry a giant uh, cigarette down Great Marlborough Street or <laughs> however you wanted to sort of interpret that. And, you know, it was really, really good fun for literally ones of people. Like, you know, I think, about, I think it was about seven people who really got into that. But, you know, like it was... Uh, there, were, there was all kinds of stuff in it that, mm. you know, Coney, um, so Tassos Stevens, of course, being a very established company now, very clear, you know, Tassos and I kind of collaborated on that. And you kind of, it's, it's funny looking back at the people who made that game, like the bunch of them now live in Portland and work for Nike on Nike Plus. You know, there's all kinds mm. of things that come out of that. So there was that. The first kind of hide-and-seek projects where we, you know, Holly set up the sand pit and that kind of then got set up through hide and seek you know she kind of came and she was involved in the social project and said you know like i want to do this event and i said i think that sounds great should we work on it together and then they started to happen the first ones were at shunt and yeah we just kind of got out there and just tried to find as many interesting artists that that we thought would want to make games and started to put those things together um shunt was a brilliant place to do that you know had an amazing atmosphere and you could just try stuff out and and really kind of go for it there and then there was this sort of this sort of studioizing of the content. You know, we got approached quite early on by AKQA, 
the digital media agency. They were working on a game, an ARG, if you remember those, Mm -hmm. um, for Sherlock Holmes, to promote the Sherlock Holmes movie. And they needed some creative direction. Um, this was, a, this was a, a, a recurring pattern through the life of hide-and-seek, where we would go into these digital agencies, and they would say, we definitely want, it. We want an ARG and a Facebook thing and a big campaign, and you'd have this brilliant deck that would have all these things, and there would be just no idea in it at all. There was, there's not one kind of iota of creative. It's just like sort of saying, like a building, we're going to have a room and a, and a different kind of a room and a staircase, <laughs> and that, as if that somehow kind of constitutes making. So we came in and designed that. We were the kind of creative directors of that. Um, so that kind of tipped us in a very different direction. We were taking the kind of real-world social play, but trying to apply it in this very kind of grand mm-hmm. digital context. Uh, it was a very fun early project called PlayStation Game Runners, where we worked with a group of young people to design new street games and take them through this kind of game design sort of boot camp process. You know, it's a, it's a good way to kind of get to grips with game design, mm-hmm. making games in the real world, because you don't have any kind of... Uh, the iterative loop is very small. You know, you make a game, you give it to a person, you see whether it's fun or not, mm-hmm. because they're either enjoying themselves yeah. or not enjoying themselves. And when they're not, or they're confused, or run off in the wrong direction because you've not explained it well. It's very direct feedback, which is a very good kind. When you're, when you're designing the games, are you able to sort of... Do you use that and, and sort of use that in sort of real time? Are you able to sort of see what's going on and, and sort of change things? Is it that curated? Or? I think it's a really, really important part of what made Hide and Seek Hide and Seek yeah. is that at the, the kind of baseline for us is not technology or engineering or it's, it's this cultural experience of play mm. and um, a kind of human shared experience where designer and player are part of the same group. You know, the kind of magic of the sandpit was, it was very, you know, there was an awful lot of very careful design that went into, every, into, into each one, but then the feeling of each event was much more loose and kind of free. People had brought games that they'd made to test, people would play them, give feedback, and then that whole group would go off and play something else together. And, you know, like, it just it didn't have the kind of, these people are the artists, mm-hmm. and these people are the audience, and those people are separate from one another. It was much more of a, it had a, had a much more communal feel to it. How does that translate then into the, into the work that you did for, for the bigger studios, for film work? And, and I, think, I think a commitment to ideas and experience <laughs> over platforms and technology. Like, we get excited and geek out about the kind of potential of any new tech just as readily as the next person. But I think we always tried to subordinate what that technology was doing to some kind of direct, understandable human experience that we thought people could have via the thing that we were creating. So, for example, with 221B, the Sherlock Holmes game, the very simple idea that powered that was that I'm going to play as Holmes, you're going to play as Watson, or vice versa, but we're going to get paired up through Facebook. We're going to have a little adventure every week and discover bits of evidence, and we won't be able to solve um, the puzzle unless we share evidence, that there's going to be things in on my evidence that contradicts things that you think and vice versa. So forcing a, a one-to-one conversation that the game didn't facilitate, but that had to happen mm-hmm. um, in order for you to be able to solve that puzzle. And that was a, a kind of very simple kind of idea, but sort of just expressed a kind of different kind of multiplayer experience that was rooted in a kind of conversation. Um, and the game was more about the chat, really, than what was happening in the, in the game itself. Where did the... I mean, we're going to get up to the point in a bit where you close... Yeah, sure, so skip to the end. <laughs> but let's talk about where, where it went from those early days and the things you've already described, what mm-hmm. was going on to the point, basically what are the reasons, I guess, we're going to get to why it, why it ended up closing down, but how the, how the things that you were developing ended up the seeds of causing that to happen, indeed. Um, well, 
I mean, there was a, you know, there was a, a desire that I had to... I think the, the kind of driving force behind most of the decisions that we took at Hide and Seek was to get better at making games and to make better games. And one of the really powerful lessons that I think we learnt is that outsourcing your game-making to others is a really problematic mm-hmm. experience. And obviously the kind of core team of Hide and Seek were not digital makers. And I think you know, the journey that we went on parallels the journey that other cultural organisations are going on but not as well and much slower, where they kind of try to figure out how to incorporate digital making into mm-hmm. the structure of their organization. And um, the kind of, you know, we, we had all of these interesting failures where we worked, we, you know, we sort of, you know, there's this, I mean, it sounds I, sort of almost embarrassing to say it, but, you know, like, I, you know, I, I wrote a game design document and I handed it over to some people and, and got back a thing that was not the thing that I, w- that I wanted. And I'm like, and then, you know, someone had to take me aside and say, well, you know, that's because this is a Word document <laughs> and that's a piece of software and these two things are not the same as, the, mm-hmm. as each other and, you know, like, you're going to have to kind of get to grips with that. So we did. And you get to grips with it by hiring talented developers and by hiring a technical director and gradually kind of building out that kind of capacity of the studio and the culture of the studio to include those kinds of making in it. And, and that's something that was really important to me. And so what comes with that is an increased overhead. Mm-hmm. And that was okay for a while. Like the kind of, the sort of expanding ability of the studio to find bigger projects and earn more money. We started to add consultancy in, you know, kind of talking to big companies about gamification and all of these things that they were scratching their heads about. And that was a kind of really useful way to kind of keep the kind of cash flow turning over. And then we would sort of basically just reinvest that in badly funded cultural projects. Mm-hmm. You, know, when, you know, like if you're a commercially run studio, any culturally funded project that you do is going to lose money. Yeah, sure. Um, at, and and I think you know, people think, oh, well, it's cost-neutral maybe, because you know, sort of, you put in an arts council budget and you get all that money back. But it doesn't take into account what it just costs to stay alive in, yeah. in London. So you're, you know. And we were committed to that, and there was nothing we could do about it, and we tried putting in budgets that reflected what it actually cost mm-hmm. to make something, and they would always get rejected. So we're like, well, we would rather do this work than not do it, because we care about it, and it's the only place that we can do it. So we kept doing those things. So you've got this slightly odd business model for an organisation, though, where you're paying for the cultural work out of the commercial things that you do. Is that something that affects a lot of startups and, and companies? We're in, I guess, a, quite a, a weird area where nobody really knows what they're doing. Everything's like new. Is a new frontier. And is that something that I think a lot of small startups are coming? There's a point that it gets to where the next leap is just sort of too big, you know, almost too big to, to surmount. There is no intellectual grasp of what it means for a new cultural organisation to grow and develop beyond the subsistence level Mm -hmm. in the cultural space. You know, the rhetoric and the funding is targeted at people who can afford to do it for fun, really. Like, it's, it's, if you're a new company and you haven't got much overhead and you haven't, you know, like, and you can work flexibly because the people who are involved in your organisation don't have too many responsibilities outside of work, or if you're a one-man, kind of one-woman freelance outfit who can mix things more straightforwardly, then working with the cultural sector can be viable. Mm-hmm. But there isn't, you know, like last year we saw preloaded... No, no, not preloaded. We saw Little Loud uh, go bust. We went down, there were several other companies, all of whom were operating in this difficult middle space of been around a while, built up an impressive body of work in a studio, but there isn't the money in, the, in each individual commission to sustain that. You know, we're still 
which we were still right up to the end of hide and seek. We spent seven years explaining to large cultural organizations that no, no, £3,000 is not enough <laughs> to make an app um, um, of any kind, really. Like, I mean, that's not, that's not enough to, to, to put your logo on a screen. And sub- yeah. like the cost of submitting that thing to the App Store and making a binary. And so that gradually happened over time. You know, there's this, this, this process where that made sense for a while in the middle. But we also started, I mean, I know, speaking personally, this sort of other thing starts to creep in. You know, fatigue starts to creep in. You know, like this, this kind of holding together this slightly awkward business model. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really, you can't really see any way that it's going to get better <laughs> um, because it's not like the, you know, I guess when I started hide-and-seek, I had this kind of uh, optimistic view that somehow the cultural sector would sort of expand in a way to make room for games mm. as, a, as a thing. That there would be this kind of, oh, hey, those guys are doing interesting work and, in, in, and it's games and it's in the cultural sector. Well, we should probably fund that in some mm-hmm. sort of a way. And, and that would sort of kind of emerge and therefore we'd be able to access that support and, and figure out some kind of way forward. Mm-hmm. That sort of became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. We had, you know, so many, you know, we applied, I think, nine times to the Arts Council in a row, every single one unsuccessful. And... Uh, uh, you know, asked why that was and went to see people at the Arts Council and said, you know, like, at any point, will you hire someone or a team that specialise in games and that, you know, like, are a kind of, you know, like we've got relationship managers for visual arts and mm-hmm. literature and they say, what about, what about a games team? And they're like, oh, no, we'll never do that. You know, and at that point, you're kind of thinking, well, shit, like, you know, yeah. like, like, we're barking up the wrong tree here. And also someone spending their, all their time writing those applications for those arts council rounds. We did work out that if you added up all the time we'd spent working on arts applications, like we could have paid a whole extra person to just make games for a mm. year. And you're like, well, yeah, that's not like, you know, ah. Uh. This is obviously, I mean, it's obviously something that happens to a lot of small startup companies, but there's something particularly, I think, ironic about, you know, working for a, a company or having a company that's supposed to be about making fun that starts not to be fun to actually do. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Hide and Seek was amazing. Like, working with a group of people that I worked with at Hide and Seek was a privilege and, and some incredibly, incredibly talented people that I'm very glad I got to be in a studio with for the time that I did. But certainly trying to, yeah, it's just that the kind of stress of holding something together that doesn't make any sense basically starts to tell. Mm. And it was ultimately my responsibility, you know. I mean, I led the company with a great board and Margaret Robson and all these people who all worked hellishly hard to try to pull this thing together. But it was my thing, I started it. You feel a certain kind of personal responsibility and when you can't hold it together anymore, that's pretty tough. And it's quite a bold decision to actually, you know, make the decision to say we're closing this down rather than just either let it just fall apart itself naturally or, or put it into hibernation and come back or something. You've actually taken the step to say, right, this is the end of this era. Yeah. I mean, I think partly that's a reaction to... I mean, I think there are a few different things in there. Mm-hmm. I think one is the people who are involved in hide-and-seek are too talented and interesting to kind of remain kind of vaguely located under hide-and-seek in the kind of possibility that it might re-emerge again. Speaking personally, I feel that Hide and Seek was started with this very optimistic idea about games as culture, and that has been disproven um, for this time period. So there's no, like, if it continues in any form, then people in charge at the Arts Council and places like that can sort of think that they're still, even though they're not funding us, they yeah. still think because it exists that somehow things are okay. Yeah, sure. So actually stopping it was kind of a, do you know what's not okay? Mm-hmm. It's really not okay, and this thing doesn't just kind of vaguely tick a box for you. It's not here anymore. And I think also, you know, like, there's no actual... It's not a bad thing 
in lots of ways for a company to end. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we feel a certain a kind of anxiety about it. And I know that we, took, we spent a long time kind of reflecting on it and making sure that it was the right thing to do. But I feel that Hide and Seek did some interesting work, influenced some people, and stopped when the time was right for it to stop. And there were all kinds of reasons why that happened. And it doesn't change the kind of quality of the, that catalogue. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I'd rather, be a, I'd rather be a band that quit when they were still good, rather than kind of cranking out <laughs> tours for you know whatever for whatever remained of what what was interesting to people for for years to come. I want to move us on to talk about actually making those conditions, the conditions you talked about, the cultural conditions that allow a company like Hide and Seek and others to flourish to sort of change that. And I've seen elsewhere you talk about is the idea of an, a national game space. So, um, well, tell us first of all what that concept means, and then we'll. Uh, we'll So, historically, we've been pretty good at noticing that there are new cultural forms that have meaning to lots of people and values at play within them that a publicly uh, sort of funded institution with public service goals Mm -hmm. could make good use of. So Channel 4, the BFI, the Arts Council, the National Theatre, the BBC Mm -hmm. are all examples of not just, I mean, you know, very different kind of an intervention, an intervention that comes directly from government that's in response to a report that tries to make a different kind of a space for culture, a different kind of culture to exist. Mm-hmm. If you look at the work of the BFI and you know, what was the UK Film Council and now is mm-hmm. the BFI again, funding, financing, exhibition, you know, distribution and access, diversity, support for new talent, distribution, archiving, there's a lot of functions that film culture needs to thrive that the market on its own won't be perfect at supplying. Sure. You know, I think central to my sense of what a national game space is, is to say that I think there's a great opportunity to design a new cultural institution in 2014 that reflects where we are now. You know, this would be the first one of these that's been designed since the internet. Mm -hmm. So we have to think a lot about, well, what does the word national mean in this context when everything will be available online around the world? But I think something that takes into account the platform and the hardware that games exist on, Mm -hmm. the lives of people who make games and the kind of sense of their kind of development as creative people, as artists, the way we kind of bring more people to games that are interesting and that are kind of culturally diverse, the way we bring more diverse makers into Mm -hmm. a space where they are able to be supported to make games and experiment and bring new voices into that kind of world. There's a lot of things I think that I think games culture pretty urgently needs that an institution could serve very well. So what would it, I mean, precisely, what would this place look like? (laughs) What would it look like? Well... So I think there is a, I think a big fuck-off building, <laughs> or more, maybe more than one. Like, yeah. I mean, I think, obviously, I'm, I may be guilty of some bias here, but I think that one of the gnarly challenges of game culture, as it is now, is that you basically access all of it online, and you access it all through platforms which are owned by U.S. Mm-hmm. corporations mm-hmm. whose first interest is mostly money, not games. So the ways in which we access content is pretty hard Mm -hmm. and that means that there's a kind of ultra nichifying of game types 
if you only experience a game by seeking it out, you're probably only going to seek out the games that you already like. And that, that becomes a kind of... And then there's a community of interest around that. And it's quite hard to get into a new game because it takes more investment than just rocking up and watching a film. So all of those things kind of reinforce one another to make this culture quite feel quite atomised and disparate. And so there's no kind of place where we can say, well, actually, there's a lot of shared values to game culture that anyone can enjoy and there's no place where that can flourish. Now, so partly I think that means that the national game space exists digitally mm-hmm. and it creates, you know, basically what I think of as a kind of public service steam, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, what does, what does that kind of distribution platform look mm-hmm. like online, which when it's motivated <coughs> by public service values of access, diversity, mm-hmm. cultural value, all of those sorts of things. But then I think there are, do need to be physical instances, literal game spaces, where you can go and encounter these things in a curated environment. What does that look like? I think it, I think it maybe feels like a really amazing 21st century game arcade mm-hmm. where you just kind of walk in and go, holy shit, like, that's a game and that's a game and... This is also a game, and there's a theme, you know, like, so, like, you know, we tend to, we're just starting to curate games based on ideas rather than these are all the games that are available on this platform, or, you know, these are all the games that are about shooting, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not the most interesting way to curate, you know, what, what's, a, what's a kind of curated series of games that are about identity, or what's a, you know, what, you know, what's a curated series of games that are about sexuality, you know, like, that would be interesting, I'd like, I'd like that game season to exist, I'd like to play those games in order and then talk to my friends about them. So I think that there's, and there's obviously the kind of interesting, complicated, needs to be invented relationship between the fact that everyone walks into this device, everyone walks into this building with access to the digital platform at the same time mm-hmm. and you have to I think get a lot smarter about the relationship between the devices in our pocket and the embedded reactive technology in the infrastructure of the building so I think there's a kind of requirement to design a new architectural infrastructure which allows a much more dynamic relationship between smartphones tablets other kinds of mobile device and what's going on in the kind of skin of the building itself in terms of the things that you're encountering and sure. playing there. I want to sort of talk a bit more about how the, whoever it was that is running this space would sort of interact, what sort of things they would do, because obviously there's the issues of having a corporate space, you've hit on, it will be something that obviously there's plenty of issues that we, we could look at that come with a, a thing being run by a big organisation. But also, if it's run by a sort of cultural organisation in the BBC or the National Theatre style, there's a, there's a chance of it seeming a bit worthy and a bit educational and, yeah. you know, something <clears throat> that has that bbc feel to it as well. So. Well, again, I think that's a, that's a design challenge. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, really, it's a really important one. I mean, I think Channel 4 is not a bad model. The basic deal with Channel 4 is that, you know, in 1982, the government gave Channel 4 one quarter of the public attention... <laughs> Because they give them the fourth channel, and that was, TV was the kind of what, not the only game in town, but it was a much more dominant kind of force at that stage. And they said, "You've now got this massive chunk of attention. Uh, we can give you that. You can sell advertising to make money for this mm-hmm. thing. But in exchange for the opportunity to make money out of the advertising, you need to make programs that fulfil these different." kind of public service criteria they have to you know you have to do a certain amount of history and uh, learning and religious education and you have to experiment well the the original charter says you have to experiment with the form of television and and advanced form of television it doesn't say that anymore but it used to and so there's a fairly straightforward trade-off there 
and of course, you have to not make these programs yourself, but invest in independent makers um, and commission them externally and only be a kind of receiving house. Mm-hmm. So I think you look at that model and you say, well, some of those things have worked brilliantly. There's now this, you know, there were no independent television production companies in the UK in 1981, and then by 1987, there were loads, and they were very interesting and diverse, mm-hmm. and they made mm-hmm. very different kinds of TV. Well, you know, what happens if you apply that to the independent game community. Mm -hmm. I think you amplify it and it develops in all kinds of exciting ways. I think that you have to think really carefully about what the equivalent government way of securing that big chunk of attention is, and that's not so easy to figure out, but I would say a not bad place to start is the BBC commands a pretty fucking big chunk of attention Mm -hmm. right now, and it could point that attention in the direction of something new if if it was compelled to. (laughs) It would never choose to, but it might be compelled to. I mean, you know, that is kind of what's happening or what ought to be happening with the space, right? And we will see what that turns out to be, but that's um, certainly the theory with the space. And, you know, when that launched in its sort of prototype typical form, Mm -hmm. I was struck by the fact there were adverts on the tube and things on iPlayer and all these things. I'm like, yeah, the BBC has big levers that it can pull yeah. to direct attention in a particular direction if it wants to. And I think that then you also have this body has a kind of commissioning power. It's going to fund games. It's mm-hmm. going to fund game makers over a sort of sustained period of time, potentially, so that they can experiment and make games that the market would not normally allow them to make. Mm-hmm. I think that there's then the potential for those games to be commercially tremendously successful. I think that there's a lot of appetite for games that are sophisticated, that engage us emotionally. Journey, a couple of years now, but you know, the biggest selling game on PSN and probably the most artistically ambitious as well. And maybe those two things are not coincidental. And that money should feed back in. So I mean I think, you know, especially because you're probably making you are making this argument in twenty fourteen when the market is king. You can't just make a kind of... Uh, it can't be just based in civic aspiration. You have to make the kind of market case. But I think you can make the market case. I think you say, by funding innovation and experimentation in the field of games and by kind of developing sophisticated, brilliant, creative, talented game makers with greater ambition and resource than they would have otherwise, you create a portfolio of games which you then sell online and that can be really commercially successful you know, globally that money feeds back into the core function of the organisation. What about the, the audience for it as well? Is it a point of this to sort of to broaden gaming out to a wider audience? Because still, despite you know, the absolutely huge business of computer gaming specifically, gaming is still something considered a, a, like a bit of a niche activity. In fact, you know, there's a name for it, gamer, right. which is weird because you know, I love music, but no-one calls me a listener. It's like... No. Fuck that term, man. I just, if I could do one thing with my life, it would be to lay the word gamer to rest in an unmarked grave. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not a niche activity, right? Like, mm. expand your definition of game playing to yeah, include absolutely. board games, card games, iPhone games, Facebook games. You know, like, the data basically supports the fact that everyone is playing a game of some kind. They don't necessarily talk about it. They don't, certainly don't kind of publicise the fact. But if you press most, like, you know, there's very few people who say, I, I don't, I mean, because it's, it's still a badge of honour in our kind of weird, morally panicked, uh, game-averse culture. Say, oh, I don't play games. No, I don't. <laughs> and then you press somebody, and of course they do. They play something, and they get value out of it. Mm-hmm. They, just ha- they just hadn't kind of... You know, what, they, what they generally mean is, I don't play those awful shooty-shooty-fighty games that my children play, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a different... I'm not going to get into that. But, um, so, it's already pretty bored. I think that the role... I mean, I think this is a really... I would say I do not have... I, don't have, I mean, all of these things are theories, right? And they, they all need to be tested, and I definitely don't feel like I have the answers to this. I think there is a really big question about what role... What's the positive role that subsidy plays... Mm-hmm 
in a sector that's already pretty successful in market terms. You know, sure. often subsidy exists to address market failure. And games, we don't have a very obvious market failure. I think actually we do, because if you look at the kind of people who tend to be making those games, they tend to occupy you know, the sort of you know, white male, 20 to 35, mm-hmm. can afford to take a swing at making a game for two or three years, and if it fails, hey, you know, no biggie. But you know, leaving that aside, there's still people making games of lots of different kinds that are reaching audiences, and that's going pretty well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think that partly it's about, it is like, I think access is a really important thing. Like, I think basically, I think there are an awful lot of amazing games that if people just knew they existed Mm -hmm. and... To a certain extent, we're told that they were good. You know, I think there's a thing that when the National Theatre puts on a play, it's not just the marketing that gets people to go. It's because it's out of the National Theatre, and there's a kind of very powerful kind of reinforcing role, a kind of convening power that a cultural institution has. When the BFI puts on a season of, of work, it's putting... It's a very powerful kind of force that exists behind that that says, no, this stuff is, has meaning, it has value. You should, you should check it out. So I think, you know, bringing a bit of that in opens up new markets, new opportunities for games that already exist to reach people. I also think that you then think about commissioning in terms of what's not being fulfilled by the market. And partly that's like talking to a very talented game maker at the Game Developers Conference. And he was very clear, you know, like the games he makes now occupy about sort of 5 to 10% of his kind of interest space mm-hmm. as an artist. But they're the ones where his work meets the market most evidently, where he knows 
if I make a roguelike, I will get people who like roguelikes to buy that game. Mm -hmm. So I'll make that, and that'll do okay, and then I can keep going. So you just, you know, subsidy immediately offers that person an opportunity to make something else from the kind of possibility space. And he's a fucking amazing game maker, so I'm pretty confident that when he did that, that thing would be successful. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't, there's more of a safety net that kind of operates around it. So just one more question from me, and then I'm going to open it up for some questions from the audience. So... What's next now? What are you doing project-wise and business-wise now? You know, spittle-flecked ranter uh, <laughs> is, is, the, uh, oh, is, yeah. the, is the sort of job title for Tommy. <laughs> I am, well, I'm just about to go on holiday for two months with my family and have a proper break, which is nice. going to be great. Yeah, I'm going to go and stare <laughs> at some mountains. I think that it's pretty likely that the next thing that I do will be a straight-up commercial project mm -hmm. because that's what makes sense now. Mm -hmm. I think that the talk about a national game space is great, but realistically, this is not a thing that's going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. and, and figuring out how we get to that place, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm committed to talking about it. I'm committed to kind of calling out what I think are the kind of weird inconsistencies of the way we fund and support culture right now. I'm committed to doing whatever I can to do that. But um, the thing that I will do next will probably not be directly connected with it. What that is... I'm, there's a moratorium on new ventures until I've gone and stared at some mountains, sure. and then I'm going to come back and um, figure, out, figure out what it's going to be. I think that seems fair enough. And actually, we've run over time, so I'm not going to take another question. So uh, thanks for coming in and give your appreciation to Alex Fleetwood, everybody. <laughs> Alex Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. And I'm Jane, is founder of Superflux, born and educated in India with an MA in interaction design from the Royal College of Art. She founded Superflux in 2009. She has led multidisciplinary design, strategy and foresight projects for businesses, think tanks and research organisations such as Sony, the BBC, Nokia, the NHS, the government of the UAE, and her work has been exhibited at MoMA, New York, Apple, Mattel Toys, Tate Modern, the Science Gallery Dublin, and the London Design Museum. <laughs> and uh, before we... We're going to get on to talk about Superflux and some of its work and, and the ideas that drive it, but before we do that... Can you tell me something about your background and design your education before you got up to the founding of Superflux? Yes, yeah, so uh, so like you said, I'm from India and I studied at the National Institute of Design in India. So it's a design school and it was founded by Charles Henry Eames. Mm -hmm. There's a big tradition of that sort of thinking. It's a multidisciplinary design school, so there's a bit of Bauhaus design influence on the school. I ended up studying filmmaking, actually. So in my previous life, I used to be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I used to make documentary films and produce documentary films. And I had a, another company doing that work. But I kind of always 
had one foot in design and I found the film industry in India extremely frustrating and difficult to work in unless you are um, working in Bollywood, which mm -hmm. I wasn't keen to. And so I applied for the, I actually applied for communication design at the RCA and then just a day before I was supposed to send the application, I changed it to interaction design and I think that was the best decision I made because I really, um, I really enjoyed the course. I think it changed my life. Mm -hmm. I think, I think about design in very different ways and I'm able to use my skills in filmmaking uh, as well so in a way it's been a long journey to to come to uh, a point where I feel I'm not so worried about defining things and defining boundaries around disciplines mm -hmm. or design but it's just kind of you live with it as a field yeah mm -hmm. so what about career-wise then up to the point of design-wise up to the point of superflux so I you like I said I did my MA at the RCA mm -hmm. and then I was working at the RCA's Helen Hamlin uh, Center for yeah. Design um, I was doing a project around future of work for a year and then uh, worked for a couple of years at the Microsoft Research in Cambridge and then at Nokia but I kind of always wanted to do things which were not looking at just one kind of technology so with Nokia it's mobile phones with at Microsoft we were thinking about machine intelligence mm -hmm. and robots and I think as soon as I got the visa to be a freelancer I, I started Superflux really. Mm -hmm. Just before we get on to Superflux, I want to talk about some of the, the people or things or designs that have been an influence on you. Yeah. And interestingly, I'm you know, reading other interviews with you. Yeah. Uh, inevitably, a lot of film imagery comes yes. up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I, NID is, is a fabulous school for learning film, and even though it's National Institute of Design, we had the most prolific film club. Uh, we were seeing films from Bresson and Godard and Antonioni every day. Mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was an approach to the world. It was an approach to the world which was inviting the audience to participate in the narrative, participate in the story. And that sort of engagement is perhaps one of the biggest influences in my work in design, that you're not just presenting, but you are requesting a certain kind of a dialogue or you are, you are allowing people the opportunity to form their own opinions mm -hmm. or, or question their opinions. So, yes. And I particularly wanted to talk about Donna Haraway as well, who's yes. someone who's a, who's a big hero of yours. Yes, I mean, Catherine Hales and Donna, Donna Haraway, um, to me, are true technologists, even though they would never call themselves that, in a sense, that uh, Donna Haraway, um, the way she framed her thinking through the, cy um, the manifestos mm -hmm. that she's written, talking about cyborgs and feminism, are a huge influence because... She talks about intelligent machines and she talks about the idea of intelligence, but it is very much about humanity and what it be, means to be human. And so every time any of the work we do around technology, that question is always there at the back of our minds. What, mm -hmm. does, this, what does it mean to be human? Increasingly more so. Superflux then, what, is it, what does it do? What are its preoccupations, shall we say? What's the sort of philosophy behind it? I think we, we, I started off Superflux very much as a hobby to be honest, to say that I just want to do a work that is of interest. But of course, my partner, uh, John Arden, who also joined me, he also graduated from the RCA Design Interactions, and he also has a background in interaction design and worked uh, with other companies before, came on board, and we decided to actually make it a business. Mm -hmm. So that was a big change, shift from uh, with John's coming on board and together um, we want this to be a business, but we want it to be a business which is economically sustainable, but also can think. Because like a lot of design studios, like large design studios or large organizations like Microsoft, where I work, have research labs. Yeah. So, so why shouldn't design studios have research labs? Mm -hmm. And quite often, we used to have, a, we, we still have a tiny room, but we used to have even smaller rooms for space to work in. And people, we would invite people to come and they'd go, 
So where's the lab? And the lab is a conceptual space in our minds. <laughs> it's not necessarily <laughs> a lab, physical lab. So it's not test tubes. No, it's not test tubes. <laughs> we would love to have a space for our tools. But really, it's about making that space conceptually in your mind to allocate time to work on projects <laughs> that really question and have a progressive design agenda through that sort of a space. Mm -hmm. And that's really the sort of ethos of, of our practice. And what the website also says, uh, the intersection of emerging technologies and everyday life to design for a world in flux. So yes. what does that mean? Websites say big things, don't they? Supposed to. <laughs> we try really hard to write what we do and probably gave up sometime last year because it's really hard to define what we do. And if there's a clever wordsmith out there, I'd love to have a chat. But... <laughs> I think it's not, by flux we mean it in a change, we accept change and we, mm -hmm. we don't say we want to create change because that feels too big perhaps, but we accept that there's change and that we are designing for the change. Mm -hmm. And by saying that, we say we accept that there's uncertainty in this world and we want to design for that uncertainty rather than try and present very certain, definitive answers mm -hmm. to things because usually that's quite difficult to do anyway. I also saw the word futurescaping, which I, I yes, I mean enjoyed. that's that's just again, um, you know how <laughs> designers also like to make up words, but I think it kind of um, we didn't want to talk about futures. Of, when you say futures, it's really a complicated word. A lot of people say futurology, but that means predictive, mm -hmm. predicting futures. So that's a different discipline. We don't believe in predicting futures. Then there's futurism, which is a tradition of doing mm -hmm. futures. There is the idea of so there's many kind of connotations. By futurescaping, what we're trying to say is a set of techniques mm -hmm. to carve a landscape of many different futures. So we are interested in designing potentiality. We're designing and exploring uh, multiple worlds, which is extremely difficult for companies to understand because most organizations don't believe, don't think about one future, let mm -hmm. alone many. So uh, it's a very linear, very short-term thinking and how do you move that to long-term, multiple views, mm -hmm. um, is the idea of futurescaping, really. I've also seen you in other interviews talk about the idea of you know, developing new design techniques and methods. Hmm. And another preoccupation of yours, particularly I've seen, is, is the idea of you know, the whole maker culture. Yes. So how much of an influence has that been on the direction of Superflux? I think we love and critique maker culture at the same time. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we, we strongly come from a tradition of you must make, but you must also question why you're making what you're making. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to be a very convenient uh, discourse that, look, I've made this, isn't this amazing? I think we need to ask more why you want to make things. So that's one thing. But at the same time, we do design through making. We, we want to make prototypes. We want to make iterations. We want to be able to make tools that are appropriate for certain contexts. Mm -hmm. So uh, we try and use as little post-its in workshops as possible because um, then you have a wall of post-its and then you just look at a wall of post-its. And it's kind of, we want to, so it's simple tools that you can design to extract insights from people. Mm -hmm. So from the very basic design of a simple tool to extract ideas and insights to a bit more complex tools that help people think about things. Of course, yeah, absolutely, we love making stuff, yeah. You've already mentioned that Superflux has the, uh, the lab idea as well. It's split into two things, a consultancy hmm. to deal with clients and the lab to, hmm. to deal with 
ideas. Um, you've sort of explained why that is, but let's perhaps talk about how those two things interact with each other. Yeah, um, I think part of the reason we had to split it quite, because we always used to say this is our work, and then we had to split them because businesses were really worried that they'd come to us and they'd get a fifth-dimensional camera and they'd be like, what do we do with this? How do we sell this? And um, commissioners would go, okay, so you're just going to do consulting. Like, I think it was done for the world outside to look yeah. at how we view these demarcations internally. It's quite fluid. We usually have one or two lab projects running mm -hmm. through the year and more shorter consultancy projects. But the best thing about it is lab projects give us the opportunity to think about things we don't get to think about, mm -hmm. write our own briefs that clients would never come to us with. It helps us to also think about things that we know will help clients think about long-term things mm -hmm. or technology. So we are able to stay ahead of the curve in thinking about weak signals and key drivers and trends. But at the same time, consultant work brings rigor because mm -hmm. we understand the value of deadlines and time and communication and all of that. So there's a very strong relationship between the two. Yeah. We're going to move on in a minute to talk about some of those design projects and I'll just get you to sort of explore what some of them are. Before we do, the other sort of split into two of Superflux is that there's a link between both London and Ahmedabad. There's not, yes. You don't have an office in Ahmedabad, do you, but people... Yeah. So there's, there's a link between the two. And again, we'll look at some of the, the projects that happen in India when we talk about projects. But before we do that, what's the, the sort of synergy between those two? What does having people in both places give to the design studio? I think it sort of gives us the opportunity to think of a wider worldview, mm. isn't it? It gives us an opportunity to understand. So when you talk about smart cities, I'm always thinking of Mumbai or I'm thinking of Ahmedabad, where I'm from, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, so how do this vision of smart cities actually get implemented mm -hmm. in, in a developed, quote-unquote, yeah. developing country? And I think... So having this broader worldview, having a broader perspective, bringing across cross-cultural perspectives into mm -hmm. our work, we hope uh, helps to helps us to to be a bit more empathic, have a bit more integrity, and a bit more sort of a visceral connection mm -hmm. to to the work we do. So it's not it's just a bit more of a reflective mm -hmm. mode, I think. You mentioned the fifth dimension camera, hmm. which is actually has been on display at, yeah. at City Fictions here at the uh, at the conference or at the festival. So let's talk about what that is. Tell us tell us what it is and what it was what it was for. Yeah, <laughs> so that was actually we were working with the research department, interaction design, and they were working together with EPSRC. So EPSRC funds a huge amount of science across the country, but one of the things that became part of their remit was to do public engagement to show mm -hmm. what they're working on, what the scientists are working on. And uh, we were paired with quantum, well, basically material scientists and quantum mm -hmm. physicists from Oxford who, yeah, who are building a quantum computer, really, trying to. <laughs> we went to their lab, and it's a huge magnet, basically, in the middle of the room with a lot of liquid nitrogen, and I practically lost all my credit cards because I was standing <laughs> right next to it. <laughs> Just, uh, <laughs> um, not clever, but uh, it is incredible, and it's, they are, some of them are theoretical physicists, and they talk about string theories, and we went there, and we were given three months to produce something that people could engage with mm -hmm. and understand, and this was meant for science festivals, like the Cheltenham Science Festival mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so we spoke to the physicists, we spoke to David Deutsch, and of course this many-worlds theory idea stuck, and it stuck not so much because of, there is a lot of dispute about mm -hmm. whether many worlds or parallel worlds exist, but the idea of actually using that metaphor to inverse the 
quantum computer. Mm -hmm. So basically the idea is that from a single point, many, many worlds split up into many dimensions, mm -hmm. the fifth dimensions as well. And then you can see time from the fifth dimension. And so we thought, what if you could photograph the world from the fifth dimension? What might that look like? And it was essentially to show how a quantum computer will process information in parallel mm -hmm. as opposed to li uh, linear computing. And so yeah. it'll be, of course, incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. um, but it will also mean that it will change the way we view reality, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so the fifth dimensional camera raises the questions about what quantum computing or its manifestation will mean to our sense of reality. And so then we presented an artifact and we had to make it extremely tangible. Mm -hmm. We had to make it in a way that kids would suspend disbelief, which they did. And it's great because actually we are so skeptical and everyone looked at adults would look at it and go like, ha. Like, yeah, whatever. But the kids were like, oh, wow, how do I use it? You know, so it's, it's great. It was a great exercise for us. Um, next time, we'll want a year to work on something <laughs> like this. But it was great to work on it. Okay, the next one I want to look at is the wearable badge, yes. the app which is a, it's about a mm. surveillance and things. Let's tell us what that is and how it works and what that was, yeah. the purpose of that was for. So it's completely opposite. It was a two-week project, mm -hmm. literally, and from the idea to the making. <laughs> and so we had to act really quickly. We were very interested in this whole NSA thing, like everyone. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to us was a couple of things. One was the trigger words, and we wanted to... We'd been looking at them, <clears> and it was incredible that if I wrote an email to my parents saying, there's a big storm approaching from southeast England or whatever, mm -hmm. and then that immediately be an email that the bot, um, the NS, or the GCHQ mm -hmm. bot will go, hey, hey, there's a storm, a word storm in that email. And so it was, we wanted to, what if we were able to extract fragments of our emails mm -hmm. and texts and publicly display them? So in a sense, you're not really able to get a full sense of any email or mm -hmm. anything. But could that even confuse the bots of the NSA and the GCHQ and other such organizations and in a sense make public what is often taken by stealth? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we were able to, we could actually get the app and we could build it and we knew it was possible to build. And so now it's on GitHub. And the idea is that if we were to build it and if we could wear it, what might that mean? But also, in a sense, a lot of wearables are about like Fitbits and whatever. So you are, it's about information. It's tracking you. It's tracking your information. It's telling you how many steps you walked. Okay. There's a whole thing guilt associated with that. But what if it was about the world around you? What mm -hmm. if it was about the networks around you? And what is our relationship to them? So in a sense, there were two objectives of the project. Okay, the, the next one, which I really love looking at and reading about, the tarot card reader, mm -hmm. which, yes, it oh. had a, a much different actual implication than that. So tell us what that was. So that falls into what I might call a tool. Like, it is a toolkit. And the idea is we were working with synthetic biologists, and a lot of synthetic biologists work on a particular bacterial strain, and they are trying to figure out how you can edit or modify that particular strain so mm -hmm. that it might have a different chemical reaction, change colour in certain situations and so on. So it's very, very sort of singular research and naturally kind of they are so involved in it. Our job was to kind of talk more about the wider implications of synthetic biology when it meets economics, politics. And so we created this set of tarot cards. Each tarot card had a certain protagonist, had a certain ear, a certain mission. Mm -hmm. And so when you play it out, you might be a journalist in Dubai. Mm -hmm. There is a directive that all uh, patent laws are out, out and you can just do whatever you want with mm -hmm. all the genetic patents and you had to get rich. That was your mission. So what would you do? And a lot of these scientists found themselves thinking about their own work through the lens of a different protagonist mm -hmm. in a different country, in a different circumstance. And I think that brought out very interesting um, scenarios. Mm -hmm. So it is basically a scenario generation toolkit, essentially. 
And so what was the, again, wider purpose of that? So what the purpose that was that this workshop was meant to get synthetic biologists to start talking about their work and mm -hmm. interacting with the wider public. Yeah. Not like in a setting like this, but to work alongside a designer mm -hmm. or an economist or a policy writer to see how mm -hmm. their work will influence all these things or the vice versa. And so because of these scenarios, then are they going to be able to go out and do that? Mm -hmm. That is, of course, remains a question. And our objective is that they should be able to think more about it. We have got for a few emails, like, you know, people mm -hmm. wanting to do this more. The cards are uh, for download and printing, so anyone can reappropriate them. So I think, I think overall, um, it has proved to be useful. We reuse it all the time. Let's look at a couple of the, the projects in India. Yeah. Then. So the, the first one... Um, which I, I just love this title, Design for India's Elastic Cities, mm. which is a, a great metaphor, I think. So, yeah. so what does that mean? So this is a sort of response to smart cities in yeah. a sense that, you know, here the way our, our interactions are being designed is that if you go around, you know, like your app has to work and Google Maps must work, you know, a lot of people are slightly shy to ask directions because, you know, a lot of, at least mm -hmm. people I know, and, you know, like in India, you couldn't work because you don't have Google Maps just perfectly anyway yet. And I think what I was interested in, the human network, mm -hmm. in people as data nodes doing multiple tasks or multiple sort of, so if you're a barber, you're also giving information about the local real mm -hmm. estate. If you're an auto rickshaw driver, you're also giving information about the latest Bollywood hits. Mm -hmm. If you're a pan seller, you're also giving information about rents or what have you. So... In a sense, the cities are rich with humans as data nodes, mm -hmm. and there's a really rich network of information created by these mobile nodes. Mm -hmm. And how can we really, and is elasticity in that sense, how do mm -hmm. we, how do we reappropriate this network for this circumstance, and how do we, in that sense, that is a smart city for mm -hmm. me, and I don't necessarily need an app sending me horoscopes as. Mm -hmm but rather I would prefer my rickshaw driver telling me whatever on, in this journey. And it's sort of ambient, it's non-traceable, mm -hmm. it is temporary, and mm -hmm. there's, there's a beauty of that. So what's the, describe a bit more of the, what the actual design project was then, because that presumably what you're talking about there is so it's something that's just, that's just happening. Yes, right? so, that is, so in, 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 in this instance, yeah. this, is, this project is a research project mm -hmm. to map this territory, because yeah. it's not been mapped before, and mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult to map. So mm -hmm. in the first instance, we are giving small boxes to rickshaw drivers to carry around them yeah. in the rickshaw and map their journeys, and in the process, map the interactions mm -hmm. and the kind of information exchanges that take place. And in the second instance, subject to funding, we would like to build on that. So mm -hmm. we are trying to map the blueprint of such information yeah networks in Indian cities and then build services or additional services or smartness yeah. what, call it, what have you on top of that. So what sort of things do you envision? Contest specific. You know, yeah. um, I think it, they, they will be more governed by the people themselves sure. so it's a which is also interesting because there are such few laws around mm -hmm. like informal structures you if if you pay a bit of bribe to the policeman you can open your little barber shop around mm -hmm. the corner for six months then his boss might see and you go might go somewhere else so there's such a lot of autonomy mm -hmm. because of the loopholes in the laws and we want to also try and build on that the other project then is concerned with desertification yeah that's uh, that's Lilo and that's really that's been a really difficult one because mm -hmm. what we wanted to do was to create toolkits with the local community because desertification is going to be one of the biggest problems in Gujarat, where I come from. Mm -hmm. Half of it is a desert. 
the poorest communities who live in the desert are going to be the most affected by climate change. They're already experiencing harsh and extreme changes in weather. And so we wanted to design toolkits that will help them work with them to bring expertise or knowledge of other regions mm -hmm. around the world, like permaculturalists who have done extremely good work in the Sahara deserts and stuff, to, to the space to recreate them. What has happened is that We've gone there, we've established conversations, we've established a great team. There are a lot of people who are really interested in joining the thing, but there's a politics. So there is a, a certain group of people who don't want that to happen. There is a certain group of people who feel we are taking ownership of something that they mm -hmm. want. So we've got entangled, actually, from a distance in, in a sort of a political limbo, if, mm -hmm. if you like, where we don't know how we can progress this project, which is great because, in a way, it points to the mm -hmm. actual ground level problems that exist when you want to try and do such a project you know it has to come from the people but the people who want to do it are absolutely powerless so it's kind of yeah and again it points to the you know the flexibility of the of the company the design consultancy that you can mm -hmm. you know operate in both these areas an area of that sort of heavy bureaucracy and also one where yeah. there's just all of that just yeah. amazing constant innovation going on yes one more of these. We're actually talking about, I should have said, we're talking about ideas that come out of the labs here, yes. first of all. And I want to look at a couple of the consultancy work ones. But the, the last one of the lab ones is um, this Arc Inc., yeah. which is like a sort of a, a visualisation of a sort of post-crash society. So let's talk about where that came from. Where, where was... Yeah, that so that was actually of? John's degree show project mm -hmm. at the RCA, and this was 2006, before the climate change denial and the climate change issues became mm -hmm. so much covered by the press, and he he imagined a service design project called Arcing um, Designs for a Post-Crash Civilization, mm -hmm. and essentially the idea is that let's imagine that the collapse has happened. Let's imagine there's this crash. And so what things will get value? What things will... Mm -hmm. So he designed a series of products. He also designed the Paradigm Index, which showed how these products, as the crash gets bigger or becomes worse, how these products that you've invested in, because in anticipation of the crash, mm -hmm. start getting more value. So he created a stock exchange, if you like, for this post-crash world and the kind of things that will have value and those which will decrease in value post-crash. Mm -hmm. He also designed a radio, which was a normal radio, and then you could break the glass, and it became a, a shortwave mm -hmm. radio, and it had a key, and it also had a solar-powered battery, and so it became so the product with a different purpose, and a series of books um, which helped people initiate them into this post-crash world. And he created the website. And until date, we receive emails from people who want to, because the part of Arc Inc. was that you become a member of the Arc Inc. Mm -hmm. collective and you can start your own collectives across the world. So we get people who are emailing saying they want to become part of the Arc Inc. members, they want to become part of the collective, especially a lot from the post-Hurricane Katrina mm -hmm. world and saying that I have experienced the crash, it's happened, I want to join Arc, I want to live in this other world, I do. <laughs> and, it is re and that is the, that is the tension of this mm -hmm. kind of work. Uh, what are the legal and ethical boundaries? Uh -huh, at, at which point you as a designer can't take it any further, mm -hmm. even though you want to build it. You can't build a real thing because it, it is problematic. And it's extremely difficult. It's been difficult for John to kind of understand because people with real problems, they, so of course they can start similar collectives, but mm -hmm. actually it's a deeper question about ethic, 
ethics yeah, and so legality. How, how, yeah, how have you dealt with that? We now? have, uh, so obviously to each person we will write and yeah. saying that, you know, this was a thought experiment, mm -hmm. but uh, we very much want to understand your mm -hmm. current situation. But we are not uh, counsellors as well, sure. are we really? So in a sense, how far do these thought experiments, and that's ethics of design fiction is something we are really working mm -hmm. on. We even think that there should be a, a little, like a watermark or a logo or something which says that, you know, this is, um, the, but at the same time you want people to suspect and disbelief, mm -hmm. which a lot of people did and understood the project. So it's, um, we, we are working with it. We are, we are trying to understand what's the best fidelity of, mm -hmm. a, of an idea that is slick enough but not too but slick. It, though it's a thought experiment, and as you mentioned, you know, obviously in, in the real world you can't really build these things, but because of that interaction with people who are actually experience those things in the real world, yeah. some things could come out of it, right? Yes, be... exactly, exactly. I mean, our also, to be honest, from Arking, and then we did the Power of Eight project, which was bringing together different people with different interests to think about optimistic visions of the future mm -hmm. around climate change. And so that was one outcome. Mm -hmm. From Power of Eight, Tessie went on and wrote a book about mm -hmm. a community, as, um, different communities that she's working in. Um, Charlie went and started working with for foraging and collecting all the all the sort of fruit that was being wasted and started creating apple. Like, he, he kind of wanted to do real action. We started Lilo Run because of that project. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of connections uh, to the kind of thinking, like how, do, how can we actually have impact change, but how can we still continue this critical conversation, I think. So there is a thread. Mm -hmm. It's just loose. You just mentioned the, the power of eight idea, which is the thing that you took part in. So perhaps... Yeah elucidate on that a bit because that's that, that's a, a really powerful idea yeah so that was in a sense it is about you know there's dystopia and then actually or utopia mm -hmm. but actually the kind of real world optimism uh, for the future how do you do, 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 do you share it do you have it is there a collective view of the future and the different people came together it was extremely difficult in those three months for eight people who've never met each other who've never worked with each other who are not designers who don't understand the design process to agree on a fit on a vision of a future mm -hmm. because uh, simple things that like I want the Taiwanese noodle shop in my street mm -hmm. and I don't and so the process of democratic create co-creating democratic futures is hard but it should be done and has to be done and the process of DIY futures and making futures as we go along is hard and should be done and a lot of things that came out of the futures like Charlie said not all of us agreed with everything but there's a part of us in this vision of the future mm -hmm. and it was troubling and there's some troubling bits and there are some happy bits and that's exactly what the future is going to be like messy mm -hmm. and complicated whichever future we become part mm -hmm. of so i think it was not so much about the future as as about the present actually mm -hmm. and that's the other thing that actually a lot of our work is about the present mm -hmm. which is something why Catherine hales is a big influence yeah. because what she's saying is all this thinking about the future is about how it helps us think about the present mm -hmm. because in a sense when you think about long-term stuff, you are wanting to extrapolate that to see how that is going to influence our present and mm -hmm. how we can then move in different directions. So I think that's quite core, cool, actually. And some of her concerns, I mean, you do see cropping up throughout your work, so things like, you know, transhumanism. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, the issues around DNA testing, for instance. Yeah. So I, I watched the, um, the, video, the, the video on YouTube of you talking in the Design in the Future lecture that you did and all of these concerns sort of yeah. come up so let's perhaps talk about the you know we don't know the future obviously we don't yeah. know what the is going to be like so yeah but we know it's probably going to be messy but some of those concerns as I said crop up throughout your work yes they do and I don't know like 
there's all sorts of different conversations to be had. Like a lot of people say, why do you bother about the future? You know, it's about the now. We've got to sort out our now. To everybody who has a child, I just say, really? Like <laughs> my son is two and he's going to be 20. And if you look at any climate science statistics, it's a scary world. If we look at the neutral scientific facts. And so how can we not think about the future? How can we not think about these questions? And how can we not try and in whatever small powers we have, try and create a public conversation around it. And doing these talks, being part of these festivals, is our only perhaps current channel. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we would like to sit alongside policymakers, we would like to sit alongside politicians and economists to actually think about how we can extrapolate some of these ideas and the, these questions into into real-world influence. I just want to talk about one more thing, which is one of the, the, the projects that has come out of the, the consultative side of, of your work in, in a number of ways, and that's this idea of the Internet of Things, which, mm. again, is just it's a lovely idea. So tell us, explain to us what that is, and then we can talk about what work Google um, has done. I think for the Internet, in terms of Internet of Things, two things interest me. One is when objects start becoming smart, like really smart, so autonomous with a sense of agency, because we want them, them to do that. But when, what happens when they start becoming even ever so slightly smart? So that's one area I'm really interested in, the emotional side of things, mm -hmm. of objects, the emotions of objects. And the other side is the big thing, the, the idea of big data, you know, big data, lots of data, let's make all data public. But actually, how can you and I even begin to understand what that data means? Mm -hmm. How can we actually use it in any meaningful way in our everyday lives? And so Internet of Things Academy or IOTA is about exploring how we can move from data spectatorship to ways in which people can actually think with that data mm -hmm. and use it meaningfully. How public can make their own data, not make public the data, but mm -hmm. how public make their own data, build their own hypothesis, and use that hypothesis to create change in their own lives. So that's really our interest. It has a specific social agenda. We are interested in complex societal problems, especially around the environment, mm -hmm. and if at all, where the Internet of Things can tackle them. So, yeah. Okay, I think that's a, that's a good point for us to end. So um, cool. we'll wrap hey, it up. Then. We're you. a little bit early, but it's it is fine. the last session, <laughs> so you're like you're allowed to go home early. It's cool. the last day. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers, everyone. So yes, Thank and you. I thank everybody. <laughs> You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.